Welcome to the 36th reading of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 3, Chapter 22, Section 3. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 3. Wherever this good pleasure of God reigns, no good works are taken into account. The Apostle indeed does not follow out the antithesis, but it is to be understood as he himself explains it in another passage. Quote, Who hath called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Unquote. 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. We have already shown that the additional words, quote, that we might be holy, unquote, remove every doubt. If you say that he foresaw they would be holy and therefore elected them, you invert the order of Paul. You may therefore safely infer, if he elected us that we might be holy, he did not elect us because he foresaw that we would be holy. The two things are evidently inconsistent, viz., that the pious owe it to election that they are holy, and yet attain to election by means of works. There is no force in the cavil to which they are ever recurring that the Lord does not bestow election in recompense of preceding, but bestows it in consideration of future merits. For when it is said that believers were elected that they might be holy, it is at the same time intimated that the holiness which was to be in them has its origin in election. And how can it be consistently said that things derived from election are the cause of election? The very thing which the apostle had said he seems afterwards to confirm by adding, quote, according to his good pleasure which he had purposed in himself, unquote, Ephesians 1, verse 9. For the expression that God, quote, purposed in himself, unquote, is the same as if it had been said that in forming his decree he considered nothing external to himself. And, accordingly, it is immediately subjoined that the whole object contemplated in our election is that, quote, we should be to the praise of his glory, unquote. Assuredly, divine grace would not deserve all the praise of election were not election gratuitous. And it would not be gratuitous did God, in electing any individual, pay regard to his future works. Hence, what Christ said to his disciples is found to be universally applicable to all believers. Quote, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, unquote. John 15, verse 16. Here he not only excludes past merits, but declares that they had nothing in themselves for which they could be chosen, except insofar as his mercy anticipated. And how are we to understand the words of Paul? Quote, who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. Unquote. Romans 11, verse 35. His meaning obviously is that men are altogether indebted to the preventing goodness of God, there being nothing in them, either past or future, to conciliate his favor. Section 4. In the Epistle to the Romans, Romans 9, verse 6, in which he again treats this subject more recondictly, and at greater length he declares that, quote, they are not all Israel which are of Israel, unquote. For though all were blessed in respect of hereditary right, yet all did not equally obtain the succession. The whole discussion was occasioned by the pride and vainglorying of the Jews, who by claiming the name of the church for themselves would have made the faith of the gospel dependent on their pleasure. Just as in the present day the papists would fain under this pretext substitute themselves in the place of God. Paul, while he concedes that in respect of the covenant they were the holy offspring of Abraham, yet contends that the greater part of them were strangers to it and that not only because they were degenerate and so had become bastards instead of sons, 
but because the principal point to be considered was the special election of God, by which alone his adoption was ratified. If the piety of some established them in the hope of salvation, and the revolt of others was the sole cause of their being rejected, it would have been foolish and absurd in Paul to carry his readers back to a secret election. But if the will of God, no cause of which external to him either appears or is to be looked for, distinguishes some from others so that all the sons of Israel are not true Israelites, it is vain for anyone to seek the origin of his condition in himself. He afterwards prosecutes the subject at greater length by contrasting the cases of Jacob and Esau, both being sons of Abraham, both having been at the same time in the womb of their mother, there was something very strange in the change by which the honor of the birthright was transferred to Jacob, and yet Paul declares that the change was an attestation to the election of the one and the reprobation of the other. The question considered is the origin and cause of election. The advocates of foreknowledge insist that it is to be found in the virtues and vices of men but they take the short and easy method of asserting that God showed in the person of Jacob that he elects those who are worthy of his grace, and in the person of Esau that he rejects those whom he foresees to be unworthy. Such is their confident assertion. But what does Paul say? Quote, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, that is, Rebekah, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Unquote. Romans 9, verses 11-13 If foreknowledge had anything to do with this distinction of the brothers, the mention of time would have been out of place. Granting that Jacob was elected for a worth to be obtained by future virtues, to what end did Paul say that he was not yet born? nor would there have been any occasion for adding that as yet he had done no good, because the answer was always ready that nothing is hid from God, and that therefore the piety of Jacob was present before him. If works procure favor, a value ought to have been put upon them before Jacob was born, just as if he had been of full age. But in explaining the difficulty, the apostle goes on to show that the adoption of Jacob proceeded not on works, but on the calling of God. In works, he makes no mention of past or future, but distinctly opposes them to the calling of God, intimating that when place is given to the one, the other is overthrown. As if he had said, the only thing to be considered is what pleased God, not what men furnished of themselves. Lastly, it is certain that all the causes which men are wont to devise as external to the secret counsel of God are excluded by the use of the terms purpose and election. Section 5 why should men attempt to darken these statements by assigning some place and election to past or future works? This is altogether to evade what the apostle contends for, viz. that the distinction between the brothers is not founded on any ground of works, but on the mere calling of God inasmuch as it was fixed before the children were born. Had there been any solidity in this subtlety, it would not have escaped the notice of the apostle. But being perfectly aware that God foresaw no good in man, save that which he had already previously determined to bestow by means of his election, he does not employ a preposterous arrangement which would make good works antecedent to their cause. We learn from the Apostle's words that the salvation of believers is founded entirely on the decree of divine election that the privilege is procured not by works, but free calling. We have also a specimen of the thing itself set before us. Esau and Jacob are brothers, begotten of the same parents, within the same womb, not yet born. In them all things are equal, and yet the judgment of God with regard to them is different. He adopts the one and rejects the other. The only right of precedence was that of primogeniture. But that is disregarded, and the younger is preferred to the elder. Nay, in the case of others, God seems to have disregarded primogeniture for the express purpose of excluding the flesh from all ground of boasting. Rejecting Ishmael, he gives his favor to Isaac. Postponing Manasseh, he honors Ephraim. Section 6. Should any one object that these minute and inferior favors do not enable us to decide with regard to the future life, that it is not to be supposed that he who received the honor of primogeniture was thereby adopted to the inheritance of heaven, many objectors do not even spare Paul, but accuse him of having in the quotation of these passages wrested scripture from its proper meaning. 
I answer as before that the apostle has not erred through inconsideration or spontaneously misapplied the passages of scripture. But he saw, what these men cannot be brought to consider, that God purposed under an earthly sign to declare the spiritual election of Jacob, which otherwise lay hidden at his inaccessible tribunal. For unless we refer the primogeniture bestowed upon him to the future world, the form of blessing would be altogether vain and ridiculous, inasmuch as he gained nothing by it but a multitude of toils and annoyances, exile, sharp sorrows, and bitter cares. Therefore, when Paul knew beyond a doubt that by the external, God manifested the spiritual and unfading blessings which he had prepared for his servant in his kingdom, he hesitated not in proving the latter to draw an argument from the former. For we must remember that the land of Canaan was given in pledge of the heavenly inheritance, and that therefore there cannot be a doubt that Jacob was like the angels engrafted into the body of Christ, that he might be a partaker of the same life. Jacob therefore is chosen, while Esau is rejected. The predestination of God makes a distinction where none existed in respect of merit. If you ask the reason, the apostle gives it, quote, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, unquote. Romans 9, verse 15. And what, pray, does this mean? It is just a clear declaration by the Lord that he finds nothing in men themselves to induce him to show kindness, that it is owing entirely to his own mercy, and accordingly that their salvation is his own work. Since God places your salvation in himself alone, why should you descend to yourself? Since he assigns you his own mercy alone, why will you recur to your own merits? Since he confines your thoughts to his own mercy, why do you turn partly to the view of your own works? We must therefore come to that smaller number whom Paul elsewhere describes as foreknown of God. Romans 11 verse 2 Not foreknown as these men imagine by idle, inactive contemplation, but in the sense which it often bears. For surely when Peter says that Christ was Quote, delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, unquote, Acts 2, verse 23, he does not represent God as contemplating merely, but as actually accomplishing our salvation. Thus also, Peter, in saying that the believers to whom he writes are elect, quote, according to the foreknowledge of God, unquote, 1 Peter 1, verse 2, properly expresses that secret predestination by which God has sealed those whom he has been pleased to adopt as sons. In using the term purpose as synonymous with a term which uniformly denotes what is called a fixed determination, he undoubtedly shows that God, in being the author of our salvation, does not go beyond himself. In this sense, he says in the same chapter that Christ as, quote, a lamb, unquote, quote, was foreordained before the creation of the world, unquote, 1 Peter 1, verses 19 and 20. What could have been more frigid or absurd than to have represented God as looking from the height of heaven to see whence the salvation of the human race was to come? By people foreknown, Peter means the same thing as Paul does by a remnant selected from a multitude falsely assuming the name of God. In another passage, to suppress the vain boasting of those who, while only covered with a mask, claim for themselves in the view of the world a first place among the godly, Paul says... Quote, the Lord knoweth them that are his, unquote. 2 Timothy 2, verse 19. In short, by that term he designates two classes of people, the one consisting of the whole race of Abraham, the other a people separated from that race, and though hidden from human view, yet open to the eye of God. And there is no doubt that he took the passage from Moses, who declares that God would be merciful to whomsoever he pleased although he was speaking of an elect people whose condition was apparently equal. Just as if he had said that in a common adoption was included a special grace which he bestows on some as a holier treasure and that there is nothing in the common covenant to prevent this number from being exempted from the common order. God, being pleased in this matter to act as a free dispenser and disposer, distinctly declares that the only ground on which he will show mercy to one rather than to another is his sovereign pleasure. For when mercy is bestowed on him who asks it, though he indeed does not suffer a refusal, he, however, either anticipates or partly acquires a favor, the whole merit of which God claims for himself. Section 7. Now let the supreme judge and master decide on the whole case, seeing such obduracy in his hearers that his words fell upon the multitude almost without fruit, he, to remove this stumbling block, exclaims, quote, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, unquote. 
Quote, and this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing. Unquote. John 6, verses 37 and 39. Observe that the donation of the Father is the first step in our delivery into the charge and protection of Christ. Someone perhaps will here turn round and object that those only peculiarly belong to the Father who make a voluntary surrender by faith. But the only thing which Christ maintains is that though the defections of vast multitudes should shake the world, yet the counsel of God would stand firm, more stable than heaven itself, that his election would never fail. The elect are said to have belonged to the Father before he bestowed them on his only begotten Son. It is asked if they were his by nature. Nay, they were aliens, but he makes them his by delivering them. The words of Christ are too clear to be rendered obscure by any of the mists of cavilling. Quote, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Unquote. Quote, Every man, therefore, that hath heard and learned of the Father cometh unto me. Unquote. John 6, verses 44 and 45. Did all promiscuously bend the knee to Christ, election would be common. Whereas now in the small number of believers a manifest diversity appears. Accordingly, our Savior, shortly after declaring that the disciples who were given to him were the common property of the Father, adds, quote, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, unquote. John 17, verse 9. Hence it is that the whole world no longer belongs to its Creator, except insofar as grace rescues from malediction, divine wrath, and eternal death. Some, not many, who would otherwise perish, while he leaves the world to the destruction to which it is doomed. Meanwhile, though Christ interpose as a mediator, yet he claims the right of electing in common with the Father. Quote, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen. Unquote. John 13, verse 18. If it is asked whence he hath chosen them, he answers in another passage, quote, out of the world, unquote, which he excludes from his prayers when he commits his disciples to the Father, John 15, verse 19. We must indeed hold when he affirms that he knows whom he has chosen, first, that some individuals of the human race are denoted, and secondly, that they are not distinguished by the quality of their virtues, but by a heavenly decree. Hence it follows that since Christ makes himself the author of election, none excel by their own strength or industry. In elsewhere numbering Judas among the elect, though he was a devil, John 6, verse 70, he refers only to the apostolical office, which, though a bright manifestation of divine favor, as Paul so often acknowledges it to be in his own person, does not, however, contain within itself the hope of eternal salvation. Judas, therefore, when he discharged the office of apostle perfidiously, might have been worse than a devil, but not one of those whom Christ has once engrafted into his body will he ever permit to perish, for in securing their salvation he will perform what he has promised, that is, exert a divine power greater than all. John 10, verse 28. For when he says, quote, Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, unquote. John 17, verse 12, the expression, though there is a catechesis in it, is not at all ambiguous. The sum is that God, by gratuitous adoption, forms those whom he wishes to have for sons, but that the intrinsic cause is in himself, because he is contented with his secret pleasure. Section 8, but Ambrose, Origen, and Jerome were of opinion that God dispenses his grace among men according to the use which he foresees that each will make of it. It may be added that Augustine also was for some time of this opinion. But after he had made greater progress in the knowledge of Scripture, he not only retracted it as evidently false, but powerfully confuted it. Nay, even after the retraction, glancing at the Pelagians who still persisted in that error, he says, quote, Who does not wonder that the Apostle failed to make this most acute observation? For after stating a most startling proposition concerning those who were not yet born, and afterwards putting the question to himself by way of objection, quote, what then, is there unrighteousness with God, close quote, he had an opportunity of answering that God foresaw the merits of both. He does not say so, but has recourse to the justice and mercy of God, unquote. 
And in another passage, after excluding all merit before election, he says, quote, Here certainly there is no place for the vain argument of those who defend the foreknowledge of God against the grace of God, and accordingly maintain that we were elected before the foundation of the world, because God foreknew that we would be good, not that he himself would make us good. This is not the language of him who says, quote, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Close quote. John 15:16. For had he chosen us because he foreknew that we would be good, he would at the same time also have foreknown that we were to choose him, unquote. That the testimony of Augustine prevail with those who willingly acquiesce in the authority of the fathers. Although Augustine allows not that he differs from the others, but shows by clear evidence that the difference which the Pelagians invidiously objected to him is unfounded. For he quotes from Ambrose, quote, Christ calls whom he pities, unquote. Again, quote, had he pleased, he could have made them devout instead of undevout. But God calls whom he deigns to call, and makes religious whom he will, unquote. Were we disposed to frame an entire volume out of Augustine, it were easy to show the reader that I have no occasion to use any other words than his, but I am unwilling to burden him with a prolix statement. But assuming that the fathers did not speak thus, let us attend to the thing itself. A difficult question had been raised, viz., did God do justly in bestowing his grace on certain individuals? Paul might have disencumbered himself of this question at once by saying that God had respect to works. Why does he not do so? Why does he rather continue to use a language which leaves him exposed to the same difficulty? Why, but just because it would not have been right to say it? There was no obliviousness on the part of the Holy Spirit who was speaking by his mouth. He therefore answers without ambiguity that God favors his elect because he is pleased to do so and shows mercy because he is pleased to do so. For the words, quote, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy, unquote, Exodus 33 verse 19, are the same in effect as if it had been said, God is moved to mercy by no other reason than that he is pleased to show mercy. Augustine's declaration therefore remains true. The grace of God does not find, but makes persons fit to be chosen. Section 9. Nor let us be detained by the subtlety of Thomas, that the foreknowledge of merit is the cause of predestination, not indeed in respect of the predestinating act, but that on our part it may in some sense be so called, namely in respect of a particular estimate of predestination, as when it is said that God predestinates man to glory according to his merit inasmuch as he decreed to bestow upon him the grace by which he merits glory. For while the Lord would have us to see nothing more in election than his mere goodness, for any one to desire to see more is preposterous affectation. But were we to make a trial of subtlety, it would not be difficult to refute the sophistry of Thomas. He maintains that the elect are in a manner predestinated to glory on account of their merits, because God predestines to give them the grace by which they merit glory. What if I should, on the contrary, object that predestination to grace is subservient to election unto life, and follows as its handmaid, that grace is predestined to those to whom the possession of glory was previously assigned, the Lord being pleased to bring his sons by election to justification? For it will hence follow that the predestination to glory is the cause of the predestination to grace, and not the converse. But let us have done with these disputes as superfluous among those who think that there is enough of wisdom for them in the word of God. For it has been truly said by an old ecclesiastical writer, those who ascribe the election of God to merits are wise above what they ought to be. Section 10. Some object that God would be inconsistent with himself in inviting all without distinction, while he elects only a few. Thus, according to them, the universality of the promise destroys the distinction of special grace. Some moderate men speak in this way, not so much for the purpose of suppressing the truth, as to get quit of puzzling questions and curb excessive curiosity. The intention is laudable, but the design is by no means to be approved, dissimulation being at no time excusable. In those again who display their petulance, we see only a vile cavil or a disgraceful error. The mode in which Scripture reconciles the two things, viz., that by external preaching all are called to faith and repentance, and that yet the spirit of faith and repentance is not given to all, I have already explained, and will again shortly repeat. But the point which they assume I deny is false in two respects. 
For he who threatens that when it shall rain on one city, there will be drought in another, Amos 4, verse 7, and declares in another passage that there will be a famine of the word, in Amos 8, verse 11, does not lay himself under a fixed obligation to call all equally. And he who, forbidding Paul to preach in Asia and leading him away from Bithynia, carries him over to Macedonia, Acts 16, verse 6, shows that it belongs to him to distribute the treasure in what way he pleases. But it is by Isaiah he more clearly demonstrates how he destines the promises of salvation specially to the elect. Isaiah 8, verse 16. For he declares that his disciples would consist of them only and not indiscriminately of the whole human race. Whence it is evident that the doctrine of salvation, which is said to be set apart for the sons of the church only, is abused when it is represented as effectually available to all. For the present let it suffice to observe that though the word of the gospel is addressed generally to all, yet the gift of faith is rare. Isaiah assigns the cause when he says that the arm of the Lord is not revealed to all. Isaiah 53 verse 1. Had he said that the gospel is malignantly and perversely contemned because many obstinately refuse to hear, there might perhaps be some color for this universal call. It is not the purpose of the prophet, however, to extenuate the guilt of men when he states the source of their blindness to be that God deigns not to reveal his arm to them. He only reminds us that since faith is a special gift, it is in vain that external doctrine sounds in the ear. But I would fain know from those doctors whether it is mere preaching or faith that makes men sons of God. Certainly when it is said, quote, As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, unquote. John 1, verse 12. A confused mass is not set before us, but a special order is assigned to believers, who are, quote, Born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, unquote. But it is said, there is a mutual agreement between faith and the word. That must be wherever there is faith. But it is no new thing for the seed to fall among thorns or in stony places, not only because the majority appear in fact to be rebellious against God, but because all are not gifted with eyes and ears. How then can it consistently be said that God calls while he knows that the called will not come? Let Augustine answer for me. Quote, would you dispute with me? Wonder with me, and exclaim, O the depth! Let us both agree in dread, lest we perish in error. Moreover, if election is, as Paul declares, the parent of faith, I retort the argument, and maintain that faith is not general, since election is special. For it is easily inferred from the series of causes and effects, when Paul says that the Father, quote, hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, unquote. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. That these riches are not common to all, because God has chosen only whom he would. And the reason why in another passage he commends the faith of the elect is to prevent anyone from supposing that he acquires faith of his own nature since to God alone belongs the glory of freely illuminating those whom he had previously chosen. Titus 1, verse 1. For it is well said by Bernard, quote, His friends hear apart when he says to them, Fear not, little flock. To you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Who are these? Those whom he foreknew and predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. He has made known his great and secret counsel. The Lord knoweth them that are his, but that which was known to God was manifested to men. Nor, indeed, does he deign to give a participation in this great mystery to any but those whom he foreknew and predestinated to be his own. Unquote. Shortly after, he concludes, quote, The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, from everlasting through predestination to everlasting through glorification. The one knows no beginning, the other no end. Unquote. But why cite Bernard as a witness when we hear from the lips of our Master? Quote, not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God. Unquote. John 6, verse 46. By these words he intimates that all who are not regenerated by God are amazed at the brightness of his countenance, and indeed faith is aptly conjoined with election, provided it hold the second place. This order is clearly expressed by our Savior in these words. Quote, this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing. Unquote. Quote, and this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son, and believeth on him, may have everlasting life. Unquote. John 6, verses 39 and 40. 
If he would have all to be saved, he would appoint his son their guardian, and would engraft them all into his body by the sacred bond of faith. It is now clear that faith is a singular pledge of paternal love, treasured up for the sons whom he has adopted. Hence Christ elsewhere says that the sheep follow the shepherd, because they know his voice, but that they will not follow a stranger, because they know not the voice of strangers. John 10, verse 4. But whence that distinction, unless that their ears have been divinely bored? For no man makes himself a sheep, but is formed by heavenly grace. And why does the Lord declare that our salvation will always be sure and certain, but just because it is guarded by the invincible power of God? John 10, verse 29. Accordingly, he concludes that unbelievers are not of his sheep. John 10, verse 16. The reason is, because they are not of the number of those who, as the Lord promised by Isaiah, were to be his disciples. Moreover, as the passages which I have quoted imply perseverance, they are also attestations to the inflexible constancy of election. Section 11. We come now to the reprobate, to whom the apostle at the same time refers. Romans 9, verse 13. For as Jacob, who as yet had merited nothing by good works, is assumed into favor, so Esau, while as yet unpolluted by any crime, is hated. If we turn our view to works, we do injustice to the apostle as if he had failed to see the very thing which is clear to us. Moreover, there is complete proof of his not having seen it, since he expressly insists that when as yet they had done neither good nor evil, the one was elected, the other rejected, in order to prove that the foundation of divine predestination is not in works. Then, after starting the objection, is God unjust? Instead of employing what would have been the surest and plainest defense of his justice, these that God had recompensed Esau according to his wickedness, he is contented with a different solution. These that the reprobate are expressly raised up in order that the glory of God may thereby be displayed. At last, he concludes that God hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Romans 9, verse 18. You see how he refers both to the mere pleasure of God. Therefore, if we cannot assign any reason for his bestowing mercy on his people, but just that it so pleases him, neither can we have any reason for his reprobating others but his will. When God is said to visit in mercy, or harden whom he will, men are reminded that they are not to seek for any cause beyond his will. Book 3, Chapter 23, Refutation of the Calumnies, by which this doctrine is always unjustly assailed. There are 14 sections. Section 1. The human mind, when it hears this doctrine, cannot restrain its petulance, but boils and rages as if aroused by the sound of a trumpet. Many, professing a desire to defend the deity from an invidious charge, admit the doctrine of election, but deny that anyone is reprobated. This they do ignorantly and childishly, since there could be no election without its opposite reprobation. God is said to set apart those whom he adopts for salvation. It were most absurd to say that he admits others fortuitously, or that they by their industry acquire what election alone confers on a few. Those, therefore, whom God passes by... He reprobates, and that for no other cause but because he is pleased to exclude them from the inheritance which he predestines to his children. Nor is it possible to tolerate the petulance of men in refusing to be restrained by the word of God in regard to his incomprehensible counsel, which even angels adore. We have already been told that hardening is not less under the immediate hand of God than mercy. Paul does not, after the example of those whom I have mentioned, labor anxiously to defend God by calling in the aid of falsehood. He only reminds us that it is unlawful for the creature to quarrel with its creator. Then how will those who refuse to admit that any are reprobated by God explain the following words of Christ? Quote, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Unquote. Matthew 15, verse 13. They are plainly told that all whom the Heavenly Father has not been pleased to plant as sacred trees in his garden are doomed and devoted to destruction. If they deny that this is a sign of reprobation, there is nothing, however clear, that can be proved to them. But if they will still murmur, let us in the soberness of faith rest contented with the admonition of Paul that it can be no ground of complaint that God, quote, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, unquote. Romans 9, verses 22 and 23. 
Let my readers observe that Paul, to cut off all handle for murmuring and detraction, attributes supreme sovereignty to the wrath and power of God. For it were unjust that those profound judgments which transcend our powers of discernment should be subjected to our calculation. It is frivolous in our opponents to reply that God does not altogether reject those whom in lenity he tolerates, but remains in suspense with regard to them if peradventure they may repent, as if Paul were representing God as patiently waiting for the conversion of those whom he describes as fitted for destruction. For Augustine, rightly expounding this passage, says that where power is united to endurance, God does not permit but rules. They add also that it is not without cause the vessels of wrath are said to be fitted for destruction, and that God is said to have prepared the vessels of mercy, because in this way the praise of salvation is claimed for God, whereas the blame of perdition is thrown upon those who of their own accord bring it upon themselves. But were I to concede that by the different forms of expression Paul softens the harshness of the former clause, it by no means follows that he transfers the preparation for destruction to any other cause than the secret counsel of God. This indeed is asserted in the preceding context where God is said to have raised up Pharaoh and to harden whom he will. Hence it follows that the hidden counsel of God is the cause of hardening. I at least hold with Augustine that when God makes sheep out of wolves, he forms them again by the powerful influence of grace, that their hardness may thus be subdued, and that he does not convert the obstinate, because he does not exert that more powerful grace, a grace which he has at command if he were disposed to use it. Section 2. These observations would be amply sufficient for the pious and modest, and such as remember that they are men. But because many are the species of blasphemy which these virulent dogs utter against God, we shall, as far as the case admits, give an answer to each. Foolish men raise many grounds of quarrel with God as if they held him subject to their accusations. First, they ask why God is offended with his creatures, who have not provoked him by any previous offense. For to devote to destruction whomsoever he pleases more resembles the caprice of a tyrant than the legal sentence of a judge and therefore there is reason to expostulate with God if at his mere pleasure men are, without any desert of their own, predestinated to eternal death. If at any time thoughts of this kind come into the minds of the pious, they will be sufficiently armed to repress them, by considering how sinful it is to insist on knowing the causes of the divine will, since it is itself, and justly ought to be, the cause of all that exists. For if his will has any cause, there must be something antecedent to it, and to which it is annexed. This it were impious to imagine. The will of God is the supreme rule of righteousness, so that everything which he wills must be held to be righteous by the mere fact of his willing it. Therefore, when it is asked why the Lord did so, we must answer because he pleased. But if you proceed farther to ask why he pleased, you ask for something greater and more sublime than the will of God, and nothing such can be found. Let human temerity then be quiet, and cease to inquire after what exists not, lest perhaps it fails to find what does exist. This, I say, will be sufficient to restrain anyone who would reverently contemplate the secret things of God. Against the audacity of the wicked, who hesitate not openly to blaspheme, God will sufficiently defend himself by his own righteousness without our assistance, when depriving their consciences of all means of evasion, he shall hold them under conviction and make them feel their guilt. We, however, give no countenance to the fiction of absolute power, which, as it is heathenish, so it ought justly to be held in detestation by us. We do not imagine God to be lawless. He is a law to himself, because, as Plato says, men laboring under the influence of concupiscence need law. But the will of God is not only free from all vice, but is the supreme standard of perfection, the law of all laws. But we deny that he is bound to give an account of his procedure, and we moreover deny that we are fit of our own ability to give judgment in such a case. Wherefore, when we are tempted to go farther than we ought, let this consideration deter us. Thou shalt be, quote, justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest, unquote. Psalm 51, verse 4. Section 3. God may thus quell his enemies by silence. But lest we should allow them with impunity to hold his sacred name in derision, he supplies us with weapons against them from his word. Accordingly, when we are accosted in such terms as these, why did God, from the first, predestine some to death, when, as they were not yet in existence, they could not have merited sentence of death? Let us, by way of reply, ask in our turn, 
Why do you imagine that God owes to man if he is pleased to estimate him by his own nature? As we are all vitiated by sin, we cannot but be hateful to God, and that not from tyrannical cruelty, but the strictest justice. But if all whom the Lord predestines to death are naturally liable to sentence of death, of what injustice, pray, do they complain? Should all the sons of Adam come to dispute and contend with their Creator, because by His eternal providence they were before their birth doomed to perpetual destruction, when God comes to reckon with them, what will they be able to mutter against this defense? If all are taken from a corrupt mass, it is not strange that all are subject to condemnation. Let them not, therefore, charge God with injustice, if, by His eternal judgment, they are doomed to a death to which they themselves feel that whether they will or not, they are drawn spontaneously by their own nature. Hence it appears how perverse is this affectation of murmuring, when of set purpose they suppress the cause of condemnation which they are compelled to recognize in themselves, that they may lay the blame upon God. But though I should confess a hundred times that God is the author, and it is most certain that He is, they do not, however, thereby efface their own guilt, which engraven on their own consciences is ever and anon presenting itself to their view. Section 4. They again object. Were not men predestinated by the ordination of God to that corruption which is now held forth as the cause of condemnation? If so, when they perish in their corruption, they do nothing else than suffer punishment for that calamity into which, by the predestination of God, Adam fell and dragged all his posterity headlong with him. Is not he, therefore, unjust in thus cruelly mocking his creatures? I admit that by the will of God all the sons of Adam fell into that state of wretchedness in which they are now involved. And this is just what I said at the first, that we must always return to the mere pleasure of the divine will, the cause of which is hidden in himself. But it does not forthwith follow that God lies open to this charge, for we will answer with Paul in these words. Quote, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, and another unto dishonor? Unquote. Romans 9, verses 20 and 21. They will deny that the justice of God is thus truly defended, and will allege that we seek an evasion such as those are wont to employ who have no good excuse. For what more seems to be said here than just that the power of God is such as cannot be hindered, so that he can do whatsoever he pleases? But it is far otherwise. For what stronger reason can be given than when we are ordered to reflect who God is? How could he who is the judge of the world commit any unrighteousness? If it properly belongs to the nature of God to do judgment, he must naturally love justice and abhor injustice. Wherefore the apostle did not, as if he had been caught in a difficulty, have recourse to evasion. He only intimated that the procedure of divine justice is too high to be scanned by human measure, or comprehended by the feebleness of human intellect. The apostle indeed confesses that in the divine judgments there is a depth in which all the minds of men must be engulfed if they attempt to penetrate into it. But he also shows how unbecoming it is to reduce the works of God to such a law as that we can presume to condemn them the moment they accord not with our reason. There is a well-known saying of Solomon, which however few properly understand, quote, The great God that formed all things both rewardeth the fool and rewardeth transgressors. Unquote. Proverbs 26, verse 10. For he is speaking of the greatness of God, whose pleasure it is to inflict punishment on fools and transgressors though he is not pleased to bestow his spirit upon them. It is a monstrous infatuation in men to seek to subject that which has no bounds to the little measure of their reason. Paul gives the name of elect to the angels who maintain their integrity. If their steadfastness was owing to the good pleasure of God, the revolt of the others proves that they were abandoned. Of this no other cause can be adduced than reprobation, which is hidden in the secret counsel of God. Section 5. Now should some mains or celestinus come forward to arraign divine providence. See Section 8. I say with Paul that no account of it can be given, because by its magnitude it far surpasses our understanding. Is there anything strange or absurd in this? Would we have the power of God so limited as to be unable to do more than our mind can comprehend? I say with Augustine that the Lord has created those who, as he certainly foreknew, were to go to destruction, and he did so because he so willed. Why he willed it is not ours to ask, as we cannot comprehend, nor can it become us, 
even to raise a controversy as to the justice of the divine will. Whenever we speak of it, we are speaking of the supreme standard of justice. But when justice clearly appears, why should we raise any question of injustice? Let us not therefore be ashamed to stop their mouths after the example of Paul. Whenever they presume to carp, let us begin to repeat, Who are ye miserable men that bring an accusation against God, and bring it because he does not adapt the greatness of his works to your meager capacity? As if everything must be perverse that is hidden from the flesh. The immensity of the divine judgments is known to you by clear experience. You know that they are called, quote, a great deep, unquote, Psalm 36, verse 6. Now look at the narrowness of your own mind and say whether it can comprehend the decrees of God. Why then should you, by infatuated inquisitiveness, plunge yourselves into an abyss which reason itself tells you will prove your destruction? Why are you not deterred in some degree at least by what the book of Job as well as the prophetical books declare concerning the incomprehensible wisdom and dreadful power of God? If your mind is troubled, decline not to embrace the counsel of Augustine. Quote, you, a man, expect an answer from me? I also am a man. Wherefore, let us both listen to him who says, quote, O man, who art thou? Close quote. Believing ignorance is better than presumptuous knowledge. Seek merits. You will find naught but punishment. O oh, the height. Peter denies. A thief believes. O oh, the height. Do you ask the reason? I will tremble at the height. Reason you, I will wonder. Dispute you, I will believe. I see the height. I cannot sound the depth. Paul found rest because he found wonder. He calls the judgments of God, inner quote, unsearchable, close inner quote. And have you come to search them? He says that his ways are, inner quote, past finding out, close inner quote. And do you seek to find them out? Unquote. We shall gain nothing by proceeding farther, for neither will the Lord satisfy the petulance of these men, nor does he need any other defense than that which he used by his spirit who spoke by the mouth of Paul. We unlearn the art of speaking well when we cease to speak with God. Section 6. Impiety starts another objection, which, however, seeks not so much to criminate God as to excuse the sinner, though he who is condemned by God as a sinner cannot ultimately be acquitted without impugning the judge. This, then, is the scoffing language which profane tongues employ. Why should God blame men for things the necessity of which he has imposed by his own predestination? What could they do? Could they struggle with his decrees? It were in vain for them to do it, since they could not possibly succeed. It is not just, therefore, to punish them for the things the principal cause of which is in the predestination of God. Here I will abstain from a defense to which ecclesiastical writers usually recur that there is nothing in the prescience of God to prevent him from regarding man as a sinner, since the evils which he foresees are man's, not his. This would not stop the cavaler, who would still insist that God might, if he had pleased, have prevented the evils which he foresaw, and not having done so, must with determinate counsel have created man for the very purpose of so acting on the earth. But if by the providence of God man was created on the condition of afterwards doing whatever he does, then that which he cannot escape and which he is constrained by the will of God to do cannot be charged upon him as a crime. Let us therefore see what is the proper method of solving the difficulty. First, all must admit what Solomon says, quote, The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Unquote. Proverbs 16, verse 4. Now, since the arrangement of all things is in the hand of God, since to him belongs the disposal of life and death, he arranges all things by his sovereign counsel in such a way that individuals are born who are doomed from the womb to certain death and are to glorify him by their destruction. If anyone alleges that no necessity is laid upon them by the providence of God, but rather that they are created by him in that condition because he foresaw their future depravity, he says something but does not say enough. Ancient writers indeed occasionally employ this solution, though with some degree of hesitation. The schoolman again rests in it as if it could not be gainsaid. I, for my part, am willing to admit that mere prescience lays no necessity on the creatures, though some do not assent to this, but hold that it is itself the cause of things. But Vala, though otherwise not greatly skilled in sacred manners, seems to me to have taken a shrewder and more acute view when he shows that the dispute is superfluous, 
since life and death are acts of the divine will rather than oppressions. If God merely foresaw human events, and did not also arrange and dispose of them at his pleasure, there might be room for agitating the question, how far his foreknowledge amounts to necessity. But since he foresees the things which are to happen simply because he has decreed that they are so to happen, it is vain to debate about prescience, while it is clear that all events take place by his sovereign appointment. Section 7. They deny that it is ever said in distinct terms, God decreed that Adam should perish by his revolt as if the same God, who is declared in Scripture to do whatsoever he pleases, could have made the noblest of his creatures without any special purpose. They say that, in accordance with free will, he was to be the architect of his own fortune, that God had decreed nothing but to treat him according to his desert. If this frigid fiction is received, where will be the omnipotence of God by which, according to his secret counsel on which everything depends, he rules over all? But whether they will allow it or not, predestination is manifest in Adam's posterity. It was not owing to nature that they all lost salvation by the fault of one parent. Why should they refuse to admit with regard to one man that which against their will they admit with regard to the whole human race? Why should they, in caviling, lose their labor? Scripture proclaims that all were, in the person of one, made liable to eternal death. As this cannot be ascribed to nature, it is plain that it is owing to the wonderful counsel of God. It is very absurd in these worthy defenders of the justice of God to strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. I again ask how it is that the fall of Adam involves so many nations with their infant children in eternal death without remedy unless that it so seemed meet to God. Here the most loquacious tongues must be dumb. The decree, I admit, is dreadful, and yet it is impossible to deny that God foreknew what the end of man was to be before he made him and foreknew because he had so ordained by his decree. Should anyone here inveigh against the prescience of God, he does it rashly and unadvisedly. For why, pray, should it be made a charge against the heavenly judge that he was not ignorant of what was to happen? Thus, if there is any just or plausible complaint, it must be directed against predestination. Nor ought it to seem absurd when I say that God not only foresaw the fall of the first man and in him the ruin of his posterity, but also at his own pleasure arranged it. For as it belongs to his wisdom to foreknow all future events, so it belongs to his power to rule and govern them by his hand. This question, like others, is skillfully explained by Augustine. Quote, Let us confess with the greatest benefit what we believe with the greatest truth, that the God and Lord of all things, who made all things very good, both foreknew that evil was to arise out of good, and knew that it belonged to his most omnipotent goodness to bring good out of evil rather than not permit evil to be, and so ordain the life of angels and men, as to show in it, first, what free will could do, and secondly, what the benefit of his grace and his righteous judgment could do. Unquote. Section 8. Here they recur to the distinction between will and permission, the object being to prove that the wicked perish only by the permission, but not by the will of God. But why do we say that he permits, but just because he wills? Nor, indeed, is there any probability in the thing itself, viz., that man brought death upon himself merely by the permission and not by the ordination of God, as if God had not determined what he wished the condition of the chief of his creatures to be. I will not hesitate, therefore, simply to confess with Augustine that the will of God is necessity, and that everything is necessary which he has willed, just as those things will certainly happen which he has foreseen. Now, if in excuse of themselves and the ungodly, either the Pelagians, or Manichees, or Anabaptists, or Epicureans, for it is with these four sects we have to discuss this matter, should object the necessity by which they are constrained in consequence of the divine predestination, they do nothing that is relevant to the cause. For if predestination is nothing else than a dispensation of divine justice, secret indeed, but unblameable, because it is certain that those predestinated to that condition were not unworthy of it, it is equally certain that the destruction consequent upon predestination is also most just. Moreover, though their perdition depends on the predestination of God, the cause and matter of it is in themselves. The first man fell because the Lord deemed it meet that he should. Why he deemed it meet, we know not. It is certain, however, that it was just because he saw that his own glory would thereby be displayed. When you hear the glory of God mentioned, understand that his justice is included. For that which deserves praise must be just. Man therefore falls, divine providence so ordaining, but he falls by his own fault. 
The Lord had a little before declared that all the things which he had made were very good. Genesis 1 verse 31. Whence then the depravity of man which made him revolt from God? Lest it should be supposed that it was from his creation God had expressly approved what proceeded from himself. Therefore man's own wickedness corrupted the pure nature which he had received from God, and his ruin brought with it the destruction of all his posterity. Wherefore, let us in the corruption of human nature contemplate the evident cause of condemnation, a cause which comes more closely home to us, rather than inquire into a cause hidden and almost incomprehensible in the predestination of God. Nor let us decline to submit our judgment to the boundless wisdom of God, so far as to confess its insufficiency to comprehend many of his secrets. Ignorance of things which we are not able, or which it is not lawful to know, is learning, while the desire to know them is a species of madness. Section 9. Someone perhaps will say that I have not yet stated enough to refute this blasphemous excuse. I confess that it is impossible to prevent impiety from murmuring and objecting. But I think I have said enough, not only to remove the ground, but also the pretext for throwing blame upon God. The reprobate would excuse their sins by alleging that they are unable to escape the necessity of sinning, especially because the necessity of this nature is laid upon them by the ordination of God. We deny that they can thus be validly excused, since the ordination of God by which they complain that they are doomed to destruction is consistent with equity, an equity indeed unknown to us but most certain. Hence we conclude that every evil which they bear is inflicted by the most just judgment of God. Next we have shown that they act preposterously when, in seeking the origin of their condemnation, they turn their view to the hidden recesses of the divine counsel and wink at the corruption of nature, which is the true source. They cannot impute this corruption to God because he bears testimony to the goodness of his creation. For though by the eternal providence of God man was formed for the calamity under which he lies, he took the matter of it from himself, not from God, since the only cause of his destruction was his degenerating from the purity of his creation into a state of vice and impurity. Section 10. There is a third absurdity by which the adversaries of predestination defame it, as we ascribe it entirely to the counsel of the divine will that those whom God adopts as the heirs of his kingdom are exempted from universal destruction, they infer that he is an acceptor of persons. But this, Scripture uniformly denies, and therefore Scripture is either at variance with itself, or respect is had to merit in election. First, the sense in which Scripture declares that God is not an acceptor of persons is different from that which they suppose, since the term person means not man, but those things which, when conspicuous in a man, either procure favor, grace, and dignity, or, on the contrary, produce hatred, contempt, and disgrace. Among these are, on the one hand, riches, wealth, power, rank, office, country, beauty, etc. And, on the other hand, poverty, want, mean birth, sordidness, contempt, and the like. Thus Peter and Paul say that the Lord is no acceptor of persons, because he makes no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, does not make the mere circumstance of country the ground for rejecting one or embracing the other. Acts 10, verse 34, Romans 2, verse 10, and Galatians 3, verse 28. Thus James also uses the same words when he would declare that God has no respect to riches in his judgment. James 2, verse 5. Paul also says in another passage that in judging, God has no respect to slavery or freedom. Ephesians 6, verse 9 and Colossians 3, verse 25. There is nothing inconsistent with this when we say that God, according to the good pleasure of his will, without any regard to merit, elects those whom he chooses for sons while he rejects and reprobates others. For fuller satisfaction, the matter may be thus explained. It is asked how it happens that of two, between whom there is no difference of merit, God in his election adopts the one and passes by the other. I in my turn ask, is there anything in him who is adopted to incline to God towards him? If it must be confessed that there is nothing, it will follow that God looks not to the man, but is influenced entirely by his own goodness to do him good. Therefore, when God elects one and rejects another, it is owing not to any respect to the individual, but entirely to his own mercy, which is free to display and exert itself when and where he pleases. For we have elsewhere seen that in order to humble the pride of the flesh, quote, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, unquote. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. So far as God in the exercise of his favor from showing any respect to persons. 
Section 11. Wherefore it is false and most wicked to charge God with dispensing justice unequally, because in this predestination he does not observe the same course towards all. If, say they, he finds all guilty, let him punish all alike. If he finds them innocent, let him relieve all from the severity of judgment. But they plead with God as if he were either interdicted from showing mercy, or were obliged, if he show mercy, entirely to renounce judgment. What is it that they demand? That if all are guilty, all shall receive the same punishment? We admit that the guilt is common, but we say that God in mercy succor some. Let him, they say, succor all. We object that it is right for him to show by punishing that he is a just judge. When they cannot tolerate this, what else are they attempting than to deprive God of the power of showing mercy, or at least to allow it to him only on the condition of altogether renouncing judgment? Here the words of Augustine most admirably apply. Quote, Since in the first man the whole human race fell under condemnation, those vessels which are made of it unto honor are not vessels of self-righteousness, but of divine mercy. When other vessels are made unto dishonor, it must be imputed not to injustice, but to judgment. Unquote. Since God inflicts due punishment on those whom he reprobates, and bestows unmerited favor on those whom he calls, he is free from every accusation, just as it belongs to the creditor to forgive the debt to one and exact it of another. The Lord, therefore, may show favor to whom he will, because he is merciful, not show it at all, because he is a just judge. In giving to some what they do not merit, he shows his free favor, and not giving to all, he declares what all deserve. For when Paul says, quote, God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all, unquote, it ought also to be added that he is debtor to none, for, quote, who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again, unquote. Romans 11, verses 32 and 35. Section 12. Another argument which they employ to overthrow predestination is that if it stand, all care and study of well-doing must cease. For what man can hear, say they, that life and death are fixed by an eternal and immutable decree of God without immediately concluding that it is of no consequence how he acts, since no work of his can either hinder or further the predestination of God? Thus all will rush on, and like desperate men, plunge headlong wherever lust inclines. And it is true that this is not altogether a fiction, for there are multitudes of a swinish nature who defile the doctrine of predestination by their profane blasphemies, and employ them as a cloak to evade all admonition and censure. Quote, God knows what he has determined to do with regard to us. If he has decreed our salvation, he will bring us to it in his own time. If he has doomed us to death, it is vain for us to fight against it, unquote. But Scripture, while it enjoins us to think of this high mystery with much greater reverence and religion, gives very different instruction to the pious, and justly condemns the accursed license of the ungodly. For it does not remind us of predestination to increase our audacity, and tempt us to pry with impious presumption into the inscrutable counsels of God, but rather to humble and abase us, that we may tremble at his judgment, and learn to look up to his mercy. This is the mark at which believers will aim. The grunt of these filthy swine is duly silenced by Paul. They say that they feel secure in vice, because if they are of the number of the elect, their vices will be no obstacle to the ultimate attainment of life. But Paul reminds us that the end for which we are elected is, quote, that we should be holy and without blame before him, unquote. Ephesians 1, verse 4. If the end of election is holiness of life, it ought to arouse and stimulate us strenuously to aspire to it, instead of serving as a pretext for sloth. How wide the difference between the two things, between ceasing from well-doing because election is sufficient for salvation, and its being the very end of election, that we should devote ourselves to the study of good works. Have done, then, with blasphemies which wickedly invert the whole order of election. When they extend their blasphemies farther and say that he who is reprobated by God will lose his pains if he studies to approve himself to him by innocence and probity of life, they are convicted of the most impudent falsehood. For whence can any such study arise but from election? As all who are of the number of the reprobate are vessels formed unto dishonor, so they cease not by their perpetual crimes to provoke the anger of God against them, and give evident signs of the judgment which God has already passed upon them, so far is it from being true that they vainly contend against it. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at 
swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26 3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.